1: Triumphant Homecoming of Huawei's CFO. Microsoft describes the foggy web backdoor, a significant cyber espionage tool. Kaspersky looks at the bloody Steeler Trojan and finds it especially risky to gamers. A novel approach to distributed denial of service. Apple looks into those iPhone Zero days. Joe Kerrigan looks at the latest offerings in password list authentication. Our guest is Matthew Gorge of Vigitrust on how law enforcement and executives can work together to fight cyber threats and a look at doings in cybercrime. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, September 28th, 2021. Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou's return to China after a prolonged detention in Canada on a U.S. warrant in connection with her company's violations of sanctions against Iran has proven to be, courts reports, a moment of nationalist pride in her home country. The Wall Street Journal reports that Chinese news media have downplayed or ignored the role of hostage diplomacy, the release of two Canadians held in China. Ascribing Miss Meng's homecoming to the unspecified but heroic efforts of the Communist Party. Microsoft yesterday released its study of a new persistent post exploitation backdoor foggy web used by the Nobelium threat group. Foggy Web is used both for exfiltration of victims' data, including configuration databases of compromised Active Directory Federation Service servers, decrypted token signing certificates and token decryption certificates, and for deploying and executing additional malware payloads. Nobelium is Microsoft's name for the Russian government threat group others call CozyBear, It's associated with Russia's SVR Foreign Intelligence Service and sometimes with the FSB Security Service. Microsoft's report includes detailed mitigation advice. We note in the spirit of disclosure that Microsoft is a CyberWire sponsor. Kaspersky researchers have an account of Bloody Stealer, a Trojan currently being sold in dark web markets catering to criminals. Bloody Stealer is hawked as an information stealer useful for employment against gamers using a range of platforms, including Steam, Epic Game Store, and EA Origin. The Trojan is both evasive and resistant to analysis. It's also cheap, going for a monthly subscription of $10 or a lifetime subscription of only $40, which suggests, again, how deeply commodified attack tools have become. Practically anybody can afford them. Bloody Stealer can be used against targets of many kinds, not just gaming platforms, but Kaspersky thinks gamers likely to figure high on the criminals' hit lists. Nexus Guard describes a distributed denial-of-service attack technique, Black Storm, more effective and potentially damaging than the more familiar DNS amplification attacks. Vice reports that Apple is still investigating iPhone Zero Days disclosed by frustrated researcher Haber and that Cupertino has apologized for its dilatory response to his bug program disclosures. And now, let's check the hot sheets, the police blotter, the supermarket tabloids, the places where the men in black would get their news, as if the men in black needed to get their news from anywhere other than from us, of course. U.S. attorneys for the Eastern and Northern Districts of Texas have indicted a large number of alleged criminals for cybercrimes. The Eastern District has indicted 23 alleged creeps on a variety of charges, including romance scams, investment fraud, and business email compromise. All of the suspects are in custody and considered, we observe, as always, innocent until proven guilty. Their colleagues in the Northern District have indicted 11, one of whom is also named in dispatches from the Eastern District. These are charged with wire fraud and money laundering. They're also in custody, scooped up last Wednesday in a big dragnet. The crimes charged are particularly loathsome in that they frequently involved elder fraud. They were also lucrative, netting the hoods at least $17 million by the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Texas's reckoning. Acting U.S. Attorney Nicholas J. Ganjai said in the Justice Department's press release, The criminal conduct alleged in this case is sophisticated in its means, expansive in its scope, and callous in its aims. The indictment alleges a scheme where all manner of fraud, including romance and investment scams, was unleashed on an unsuspecting American public, including the elderly and most vulnerable, with the ill-gotten gains siphoned off and funneled overseas. The amount of loss, both financial and emotional, alleged in this case is nothing short of staggering, end quote. His colleague in the Northern District of Texas was even harsher in his estimation. Acting U.S. Attorney Prarak Shah said at a press conference announcing the charges, quote, Crimes like these are especially despicable because they rely not only on victims' lack of Internet savvy, but also their isolation, their loneliness, and sometimes their grief. As the victims open their hearts, the perpetrators open their wallets. The only mistake these victims make is being generous to the wrong people, End quote. The crew arrested are believed to be part of a transnational gang whose activities emanate from Nigeria. The record reports that the suspects are thought to be members of the Black Axe, a Nigerian criminal confraternity that emerged from university student associations in the 1970s with quasi-religious overtones. Members are said to hold that they have a duty to prey on the gullible, the unwary, the weak. They're known for human trafficking, violence and drug trafficking, and, of course, online fraud. 419 scams, the familiar Nigerian print scam, is often used as an initiatory crime for new members. What else? Well, there's this. Some third-hand news of gangland, but it looks legit. Reuters reports that TASS, the Russian news service— is authorized to disclose that one Alexei Burkov has been deported from U.S. confinement back to Russia. He was arrested in Israel in December of 2015 and extradited to the United States in November 2019. In January of 2020, Mr. Burkov pleaded guilty to fraud, identity theft, computer intrusions, and money laundering. He was operating websites that facilitated carding and other computer crimes. Why the man booted him out of the U.S. is unclear, since the U.S. and Russia don't have an extradition treaty. But Mr. Berkhoff isn't likely to be getting a hero's welcome in Moscow. He's wanted there on Russian charges, too. The Wall Street Journal says a U.S. cryptocurrency expert has pleaded guilty to illegal export of blockchain technology to North Korea. Virgil Griffith took the plea yesterday in a Manhattan federal court He'd been, until his arrest in November of 2019, a senior researcher for the Ethereum Foundation. The occasion for his offense was his attendance of a 2019 conference on blockchain technology, where he consulted with the North Koreans. The U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York charged him with conspiring to violate the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, the law that prohibits U.S. citizens from exporting goods, services, or technology to North Korea. The blockchain may still look like something out of a techno-libertarian wild, wild west, but prudent desperados should know that law west of the Pecos stops somewhere east of Pyongyang. In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple. When a data breach or other security incident occurs, many organizations are hesitant to call in law enforcement. There are a number of reasons for that reticence, be it fear of additional scrutiny, bad PR if the incident goes public, or just a general distrust of the police. Matthew George is CEO and founder of Vigitrust, a provider of integrated risk management SaaS solutions— I checked in with him for insights on how we might see better collaboration between law enforcement and the private sector.
2: So you have to understand the life of a CISO, right? So if you look at a CISO, a CISO is the person whose name nobody knows if everything goes well. But the minute something goes wrong, they're public enemy number one. So they're not necessarily the most popular people in the company, let alone in the C-suite, let alone at the board, uh, if they ever get a seat at the at the board table, and so they they tend to shy away from anything that has uh, any kind of connection, remote connection to to legal stuff, and so to them, uh, law enforcement means there's a legal problem. There might be uh, a lawsuit, there might be criminal charges, whatever. I don't deal with that. Let the chief legal officer or the attorneys deal with that. And what they don't understand is that the role of law enforcement goes well beyond that type of stuff. Um, For instance... The FBI is, is doing a lot of work in, in the US in terms of educating people, in terms of talking to CISOs, in terms of talking to the security industry, generally speaking. Interpol is doing uh, the same. Where VG Trust is based in Ireland, we have the, the GADA Computer Crime Bureau, they're doing that as well. And in many countries, they're doing that. And but I think that they're 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 not necessarily invited into the organization because the CISOs feel that. Maybe they're going to start digging around, you know. Maybe they're going to see stuff that we're doing that's not exactly the way we should do it, or maybe they know compliance better than we do, or security better than we do, and they may think they may find issues that we're not aware of, or they may highlight issues we are aware of but we haven't managed to address yet, and so they see them as clearly uh, as somewhat of the enemy, and and I think that's the wrong approach. And so what what we're seeing now is we're seeing law enforcement worldwide. Trying to address that that I the, the that misconception out there hmm. by providing stuff back to to law enforcement. And if I may, there's, there's another point uh, there in that you look at public-private partnership, generally speaking, uh, whether it's for uh, security or, or not. There's always a feeling from the industry that the industry gives way more to the government than the government gives back. And that feeling is very true in in cyber. There's kind of a feeling that uh, collectively the security industry and the industry, generally speaking, is providing a lot of data to the government so that they can help them with protecting the organizations, but the government is not necessarily reciprocating. Um, So there's kind of that that idea that, hey, you know, I, I scratch your back, but you don't scratch mine. What part does
1: law enforcement have to play in fostering this relationship? Should they be doing a, a better job at outreach at saying, you know, if we come and um, and engage with you, it's not going to be a fishing expedition?
2: Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Uh, I, I do believe that some of them are doing a good job at that. Uh, hmm. They're still kind of faced with some pushback, as I explained earlier. But yes, they need to. I think they need to really share information, right? And and that's the that's the issue that they there's still that kind of conception out there that we are going to share information with them, but they're not going to share information with us. Uh, at VG Trust, we have a a global advisory board, which is a, a non-commercial think tank with about 700 members, CISOs, board of directors, uh, regulators, law enforcement, uh, academia, and so on. And the guys that we have that come to talk to our advisory board, and some of them are actually full members of the board, are from FBI, Interpol, uh, local police, and they share data. And yes, they share data to a smaller group of people that they've already vetted and so on, but they're quite happy to share some data. And they're, they're, they're happy to say, hey, we're seeing that type of attack. We're seeing a rise of that type of attack in that particular industry, in that particular region hey, we're seeing a type of attack we've never seen before. We're also seeing attacks that we don't understand. Have you guys seen those attacks? And it's kind of that whole idea of creating a dialogue and a two-way street as opposed to, to a one-way one. So to, to that extent, I believe that they still need to do a better job at, at volunteering information to the public, uh, I mean, the selected public in terms of CISOs. But I do believe they are going the right direction. That's Mathieu Gorge from Vigitrust.
1: With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-plus-year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms FedCyber. That's aka.ms/slash fed cyber. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute, also my co-host on the Hacking Humans podcast. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Uh, Interesting article. This is from Wired, uh, written by Lily Hay Newman, Mm -hmm. uh, and it's titled, You Can Now Ditch the Password on Your Microsoft Account. Uh, This is something we talk about a lot over on Hacking Humans, people dealing with passwords. So what's going on here, Joe?
0: Dave, it seems like passwords or getting rid of passwords has been on the horizon like fusion power, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I use this reference frequently, but you know, it's always been 10 years away, 10 years away. No matter when you ask. Exactly. Yeah. But the thing to remember about passwords is it's it's a terrible solution that was developed very early on in the early days of of computing mm-hmm. uh, as a means to make sure that people weren't hogging up all the resources on a time sharing computer. Yeah. Right. And to allocate that time. Uh and And even the first time it was implemented, somebody found a way around it. (laughs) But I digress. But so we have these passwords now. We've been using passwords, and we've been trying to secure passwords with hashing. And humans are terrible at developing passwords that are random. Yep. So – We've been recommending using a password manager. People don't do that because it has friction. People hate using passwords. Uh, It seems like passwords hate people. People hate passwords. Yeah. So we've been saying we should just get rid of passwords, and we haven't really found a good way to do that. Well, Microsoft has finally taken a step in that direction. With their Office 365 product or Microsoft 365 product, you can now opt for the passwordless means of authentication, mm-hmm. and there are a number of ways you can you can do that. Number one is you can use some kind of biometric device, right? Like if your phone or your computer has a, a fingerprint reader, you can use that. Yeah. Uh, instead of a password, you can use a uh, an app on your phone that you're logged into your Microsoft account, and it says, "Here's a code," or "Is this you?" Yeah. And then you say yes, and that authenticates you, right? The, you can use a YubiKey. And this happens to be the one I like the best mm-hmm. uh, using a YubiKey. Uh, and then there are other ways to log in, like a verification sent to your phone or as an email uh, as an alternative to a password. Yeah. All right. Now, I'm, I'm less inclined to like those, right? Okay. Because of SIM swapping, if they're going to send you an SMS or if they're going to send you an email, now it's dependent upon how secure your email is.
1: Right. right? right. Uh,
0: also, if Microsoft is your email provider and you're needing to authenticate to that, you know there's kind of a loop there right right, right. <laughs> so yeah. uh, i recommend the yubikey over over the other ways of doing it i'm not a big fan of biometrics the app is actually fine you and i have talked about biometrics and actually if you're talking about using modern modern biometrics and you said i'm just going to use that i wouldn't argue with you about it yeah i yeah. i do have some concerns about it long term if there ever becomes a a problem with the protocol or a way uh, a way to spoof the biometric information that biometric information is by its very nature immutable and cannot be changed right uh and that's that's really the the crux of my problem so i don't have a threat model in mind but when a threat does attack that that authentication method there will be little we can do to change how we authenticate
1: yeah we should mention, I mean, this article points out that um, Microsoft has made this available to their enterprise users for a while now. Right. They have 200 million users on that side, so they've really had an, uh, an opportunity to, to test this with a large group of people, and this is what they're rolling out to consumers. Right. And I wonder, with an organization as large as Microsoft, with the influence they have—I should mention, by the way, Microsoft is a CyberWire sponsor— mm-hmm. Um, with the the scale and influence that they have, um, could they really uh, shepherd in a, a change here? Could this be a step along the way to be done with
0: passwords once and for all? Yeah, I think Microsoft is a, is a big player in this field, and as a player by by their nature, they're kind of a leader here. Yeah, other developing organizations. I mean, Apple already has the Face ID right. as a means of authentication. Yeah, right. So other organizations like Google and uh, Amazon and Facebook and all these other big ones that you always think of—they could start following suit with this and, and ditching passwords, or at least offering users the opportunity to ditch a password. Yeah, I, I do like of all these methods. My favorite is the authentication token. Mm-hmm. These are usually based on um, something called universal two-factor, and that is a almost—it's a form of public key private key authentication which is something we've been looking for for years is an easy way to do that. And Universal Two-Factor has been around for a while, but it is a good way to do public key, private key authentication. Because let's say someone does breach Microsoft and steals all the uh, information uh, about the users. If you're talking about password hashes, well, those are crackable unless you have a really strong password. But if you're talking about public keys, they're useless. Mm. They're absolutely useless. Mm -hmm. Um, the, The only... Use that public key has is for authenticating the person who has access to the private key.
1: Right, right. Yeah, there's an interesting quote in here uh, from Brett uh, Arsenault, who is uh, Microsoft's uh, chief information security officer. Uh, And he says, you think that everyone hates passwords, but there is one faction of people who love passwords. They're called criminals. That's, I think that's
0: right. That's very, a very astute observation. Yes. Yeah. They yeah. love
1: them. I think it'll be interesting to see if, if this becomes the default where you can – you if, when you sign up for a new account with Microsoft or some of these other providers, does these do these passwordless options – are they the default? You could still use a password if you wanted to, but they really try to channel you into this new way. I, I think that could be a, a good move.
0: Yeah. I think it could be as well.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.